All right. So what we've been doing for this school year, it's been, it's been what, a month and a half or so since we did this. Uh, it's kind of walking systematically through major sections of scripture and kind of trying to point, pull all of this together. Um, because I'm convinced that most of you guys, if you grew up in church, you know the stories of, you know, Adam, Noah, and the ark. We have like 18 Noah's Ark books for Ella. Um, and Asher gets nothing because he's the second child. And I'm sure if you have older siblings, that was the same for you. Um, <laughs> Laura's like, yeah, that, that's Quinn, right? Charlie has all the books. Quinn has nothing. But we don't tell that. Um, you know maybe about Gideon and Samson. Maybe not the whole story of Samson. We dealt with that last time. Um, or in Kings, you know, maybe you know about David or Saul or Solomon, his wisdom. You know about Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel, maybe. Um, but I'm trying to take all of these stories that are kind of floating around in our minds and put them together, put them in the big storyline of Scripture. So we don't just have all of these, you know, I know one page out of the Bible, but we kind of have an idea of the storyline of Scripture and then also not just the storyline, but how it points us to Jesus Christ. So today we're working through this section of the Kings. Um, just a recap of some of the things we've already seen as we've been going through this. Um, one of the major themes I keep pointing out is that God constantly glorifies himself. Right? God shows how amazing, how awesome, how wonderful he is by being good kind, merciful, generous to his people when they don't deserve it. Well, especially when they don't deserve it. We'll put it that way. So in creation, God doesn't create, you know, 2D, black and white, boring creation. He puts them in the Garden of Eden with everything good and perfect. Um, we have the promise, you know, if you sin, if you eat this fruit, you will die. And then God doesn't just give up on his people, but rather he calls... Eve, Eve, the mother of everything living, through this curse of death, he still promises life. Um, in the Exodus, right, God's people are slaves, but God doesn't just be like, well, maybe you shouldn't have sinned and things would have been better. Sucks to be you. He rescues them, not just, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, here's a rescue, figure it out. It's like plunder your Egyptians, cross the Red Sea type rescue. He gives them the law. He gives them the land. Um, and, and last time, whenever that was, early December, I think, he gives them leaders of the land, the judges, who Deborah was okay, um, but <laughs> quickly went downhill. Um, and kind of the, the goals that the, the Hebrews are trying to work for is they're trying to have God's special people in God's special place with God's special presence there. And you would think that when we get to the time of the kings, we've made it. We're there, right? Because you have a nation, right? They have a king. They have land, and God's presence is with them through the tabernacle later. Um, the temple would be built. And theoretically, we're there, except that, you know, you read through the kings, and you find out that doesn't happen. Um, so tonight... I'm just going to give you a historical overview of what we're talking about, maybe some of the, the history, the storyline. And I want us to see three things. 
um, how God's character of this slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love shows up time and time again in the Kings. The danger of idolatry and syncretism. Anybody know what syncretism is? I probably shouldn't have used that word. When you see the word sync, what does that, what does that mean? To be in step with, yeah. It's just when God's people start living like those aren't God's people, when they start syncing up with the world instead of being God's special people. Um, and then the hope that the kings give us. So, yeah? Do I need it? I don't think you do, but would it, would it just be I don't care. If you want to, that's fine. I, I don't care at all. So when we talk about the kings, anybody know what books we're dealing with? I, I got Jeremy for a couple. First Kings. Okay, First Kings. You want to give me a second one as well? A second one? Second. Anybody else got anything to add? Jeremy took the easy ones. Yep. Yeah, First and Second Samuel. Anything else? First and second, are you just looking at a table of contents and hoping for the best? Yeah. First and second Chronicles. Um, so the way this works is first and second Samuel kind of gets us introduced to the monarchy, to the kings. We got Saul and David there. In first and second kings, you have all the other kings um, and describes basically how they failed at what God calls them to do. And then in First and Second Chronicles, you, you really have a repeat of Samuel and Kings, um, but it gives hope in Exodus. Instead of talking about all the failures, it's more talking about how God is faithful even in the midst of them. Um, so tonight we're going to focus on First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then we'll bring in Chronicles at the end. All right. So. Why didn't Israel have a king to begin with, right? We have this nation. It starts with Abraham. And then we go thousands of years through the Exodus. I mean, no king in slavery makes sense. The 40 years in the wilderness. Then you have the, the I think it's about 80 years in the time of the judges. You also have Joshua's period in there. So let's go, you have about 200 years of a nation with no king, right? You have about the history of the United States with no president. Why don't they have a king to begin with? Anybody have thoughts on that? Jeremy has some thoughts. They don't need one. Why not? Because they have God. Yeah, that's basically, you know, the easy answer is, they don't have a king because they have God leading them. And like, why, why do you need a king? If you just have people following after the Lord, then, then you'll be in good shape. Um, they could have had a king. Genesis 17, when God makes his promise to Abraham in the first day, when he cuts the animals in half, you have like the smoke and the fire walking through them. You have the weird covenant ceremony. Um, God tells Abraham, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Um, or when God gives them the law in Deuteronomy, there's laws in Deuteronomy 17 for how a king should rule, right? 
um, 17, 15, you may indeed set the king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from your brothers. But he must not acquire many horses for himself, so he shouldn't try and be rich. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor should he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold when he goes on the throne. Can you read that? Is that too small? It is. It's very small? Great. Uh, verse 18. When he sits on his throne, his first task as king is he has to take the Bible, the law, and he has to make his own handwritten copy of it. He gives it to the priests. They look at it and say, yep. You didn't, you know, leave out Leviticus or something. Um, then he reads it so that he knows what God commands of the leaders in, of his people, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So you have this provision for a king, but God says, but you don't actually need a king because I am your king. And then we come to 1 Samuel. So uh, Samuel... So last week, last week, last time, we looked at all the judges, right? Anybody remember any of them? No, great. Anybody remember what a judge did? Did they judge? Yeah, okay. Judges were leaders, usually military-type leaders, but they were like political, you know, military leaders. Um, <clears throat> you know, Israel would get themselves in a the bind because they would obey God. God would bless them. And then they'd be like, oh, if God's blessing us, let's go off and sin. God would punish them by another nation coming to wage war against them. They would need somebody to rescue them. God would raise up a judge. The judge would rescue them. They would obey for a while and just had this cycle downhill. Uh, the last of the judges in the book of Judges is Samson. But the last actual judge was Samuel. Um, and, in, and when he was in charge in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, the people asked for a king. Why do you need a king? Um, you know, and God says, go ahead, give them what they are asking for. What they want is something bad, it's something sinful. Not that a king in and of itself is wrong, but they are rejecting God so that they can have a human king in the land. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you. It's not like, hey, Samuel, we don't want you to lead us. Give us a king instead. Um, but rather they have rejected me, God, from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are doing this also to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who shall reign over them. So Samuel says, hey, you guys don't actually want a king. You're supposed to be a great guy. It's not going to happen. Um, but sure, who do you want? So they go out and they find somebody who's tall, which is, you know, the obvious sign of capability and leadership. Am I right? Um, you know, tall people are where it's at. So they find Saul. He looks good because, again, head above everybody else. And, you know, Samuel's like, this guy, you sure? And God's like, give them what they want. So Samuel anoints Saul as the next king. And for the next 20 chapters or so of 1 Samuel, you just have the story of Saul's life going downhill quickly. Um, at the same time, David's kind of rising to power. He fought a guy. Anybody, 
Anybody know any famous stories about David in like 1 Samuel 17-ish? David and Goliath, he killed a giant while Saul's, you know, sitting in his palace, not doing much. Um, and Saul got really jealous. Uh, in fact, some priests helped David one time. And in chapter 22, Saul says to, you know, foreign armies, hey, I want you to kill 86 of my priests because they helped David. Like, Saul just turns out not to be a good king at all. Um, <clears throat> And then after that, though, we get David, who's this undeserved king. Because people sinned, God gave them a bad king as punishment. And people continued to sin, and God gave them a good king. Um, and King David. So that's First Samuel in two minutes. Second Samuel talks about David. Uh, you got about ten chapters of the good things he did. So there's this song, you know. Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed ten thousands, which I guess that's a cool song. I don't know. Maybe the tune's catchy. Um, he, he rises to the throne. He has tons of military victories. In chapter 7, he comes back to, oh man, capital city under David would have been, anyone want to help me here? Nope, great. He comes back to his capital, and he's like, you know what? This isn't right. Like, I have a palace. And all this time, God's living in this tent we've carried through the wilderness. Like, God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you the temple. And God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house instead, but not like a physical palace, but, you know, a lineage, a kingdom, a ruling family. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes a promise to David that there's always going to be one of his sons on the throne. Um, chapter 8, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Chapter 9, you have the story of Mephibosheth. We don't have time for Mephibosheth because I'm already going really slow. Great story of David's compassion, though. But then you get to like 11 through 20 and you get some of the bad things that David did. There's the whole Bathsheba and Uriah incident. Um, you know, gets another man's wife pregnant, so he kills the other man. Um, his sons do similar things. They start killing each other. David doesn't really seem to care or do anything. Um, and then he just gets some random stuff at the end. Like God says, hey, don't, don't do a census. You know what a census is? Yeah, when you count people. He's like, don't count your armies to be like, hey, can I defeat these people? Do I have enough, enough soldiers? It's rather just trust me and I'll give you the victory that you need. Um, so David goes and he does a census, right? And he sins against God in that. Um, and then David dies. First Kings, you get his son ruling. Anybody know his son's name? Solomon, Solomon great. It's on the screen behind me. Um, Solomon was known for being wise and rich and yeah, foolish, right? He was... He had a few thousand too many women in his lives, in his life, um, and he committed idolatry at the end of his life. Started great, ended up poorly. Uh, his son Rehoboam becomes king, and then you have another kid, Jeroboam, and they basically start fighting. There's treason. 
the kingdom splits in two. Now you have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel's two kingdom, two tribes. Judah is ten. Um, Fifteen and sixteen get the north decline. And I mean, it's it's crazy. Like you have like maybe three decades covered in in First Kings fifteen and sixteen, and in like th- thirty years, you have. Three of the people, they kill their predecessor to take the throne. Like, that's just the way that life works. Every 10 years or so, king's getting killed and the killer's taking the throne. Um, It kind of culminates with Ahab, who is the worst of the kings. Um, I'm in 1 Kings 16.30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who went before him. And as if it had been light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbeel, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So if the king, he takes a wicked, evil wife, he builds a altar to, to Baal, one of the Canaanite gods, and also to Asherah, another false god, and he leads Israel to worship them. And then, you guys heard of Elijah? His whole deal is in the end of First Kings, um, which basically says this idolatry that you've been doing in Israel is going to end one of two ways, Right? It's either going to end in God judging you, which he promises would happen, or in repentance. If you turn from your evil, if you humble yourself, if you follow God, God won't judge you. He'll forgive. Um, which way did you know, Ahab end up? Anyone know? Judgment? 1 Kings 21. We'll, we'll flip somewhere. Go in 1 Kings 21, 27. Here, it's right here. I'll put it bigger. 21, 27 through 29. That's what we're looking for. Sorry, I'm, like, I'm not prepared. You just sprung this on me. Like, So we are midway. If you get to Psalms, you went too far. If you have something that looks prophety, you're too far. It's first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings. When somebody gets there, go ahead and read it. So um, uh, Elijah just makes this proclamation, right? Um, that basically. God's going to judge you. Um, He's going to judge you, and he's going to judge your wife. Verse 23, And of Jezebel, your wife, the Lord said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Which is not an awesome, like, 
there's really not a lot of good things that can happen to your body after you die. Like burial's not the best, cremation's not the best. Like, but having the dogs eat you and lick up your blood, that's kind of just adding insult to in injury, right? Um, anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of heaven shall eat. And, you know, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Anybody there? First Kings 21, 27. Go ahead and read it for me. 27 through 29. Ahab, worst king in the history of Israel, repents. Is it a true, you know, I'm going to become a Christian now repentance? Hard to say. There's some texts that make it seem like that's not the case. Um, but here it's, you know what? Ahaz humbled himself. Ahab humbled himself. And the Lord says, hey, I'm not going to give this judgment to you. It's going to happen in your son's days if they're evil instead. Which leads us to 2 Kings which is just kind of this avalanche of evil kings coming down, um, which ends with the fall of Israel, Ahab's sons being judged in 722 B.C., that's chapter 17, and then the fall of Judah to the Babylonians in 587 B.C., which is chapters 22 through 25. And so if you read 2 Kings, it's kind of confusing, because whereas 1 Kings just kind of deals with the northern kingdom, Second Kings is going to basically follow one king in either of the kingdoms through his life, and then he dies, and then we switch to the other kingdom. Meanwhile, in you know Judah, you have this king on the throne, and then he dies. And then in Israel, we have this king on the throne, and you just jump back and forth, unless for some reason they need to meet, and the stories between the two kind of come together. Uh, the worst king you have is Manasseh, chapter 21. You have three good kings. Without looking, anybody know him? Josiah? Come on, Josiah. Where were you on that one? You should have known that Josiah was a good king. Like, <laughs> that's fine. Josiah? Anyone? One of the other two without looking? Hezekiah? That's fine. You're cheating. And we're also looking at Joash is the third. Um, we have, we have three good kings in the history of Judah. No good kings up north. Um, and then it's destroyed, right? Uh, in 17.7. Are you still in 1 Kings? Flip over to 2 Kings 17. It's the next book. In 17.7. We read, the destruction occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. So basically have this picture of, in 2 Kings alone, you have 26 evil kings. 
ruling and God being patient, 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 patient through 26 evil kings before they're finally destroyed in chapter 17. Um, let me just read a, a minute here. 17, 14 through 23. Here's, if you want to know what the period of the kings was like, you know, what everyday life was like, if you want to watch. You guys don't watch Seinfeld. That's fine. Just like every day random day in the life of, of Israel during the time of the kings. Here it is, 17, 14 through 23. Um, God says, I sent prophets, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah, which is a false you know, temple, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. But Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So that's pretty much the picture of the kings. Um, so let me, let me grab three takeaways that I want you to, to know from this. Um, yeah. So first... Notice God's patience in the kings, right? We always want to think, you know, not only was, does this teach us about God's people, what does this teach us about God? Um, the, the desire for a human king to begin with was a sinful one, right? Way back with Samuel appointing Saul as the king, God says, this is sinful, and as punishment, I'm going to give them exactly what they wanted. It was a rejection of God as king. It was treason to put in a king of their own. And God gave the people what they wanted as a judgment, as a punishment for their sin. Um, but at the same time, God also did great things through the kings, right? Anything good happened from the kings that you know of? I mean, we just kind of focused on the negative. Yeah. Yeah. There are periods where, you know, God just kind of resets things and he, he has all the temples of the idols torn down. Hey, here's a fresh start. You have a good king. Be faithful this time before judgment happens. What else happens? 
Yeah, I, I mentioned with David, like every fight that they engaged in, God gave them victory. Um, God protected them for hundreds of years and was kind to them. What else? I mean, under Solomon, you have just this wealth and this money. So, like the Queen of Ethiopia hears of how much Queen of Sheba, yeah, Queen of Sheba comes and she hears of how rich that Israel is. And hey, let me see Solomon. Let me see this king that has so much. You have the temple being built, which isn't you know insignificant. God's special presence is dwelling with His people. We'll hit the temple in in a minute here. Um, you even have the David, the promise to David that there's always going to be a descendant on your throne, which is setting up everything Jesus needs to come and be the king of kings. So even in God's, even when God is sinned against to start the kingdom, that means that God doesn't just be like, well, this whole thing is dumb and nothing good is going to come of it because it started sinfully. You know, there's, I'm going to do good through this. Um, oh. I mean, even Saul, right? His choice was only human, but God anoints him anyways. Um, why, why would God do this? Because again, we see God gives himself glory by doing good to people who don't deserve it, right? I mean... Have you ever had the thought, which I, I'm assuming you have, right? That you have done something so sinful, so maybe just so stupid, that as good as God is, there's no coming back from this. Like, maybe I just ruined my entire, maybe I just ruined God's entire plan for my life by whatever it is that I did. Either sinful, wicked, stupid and immature, whatever it might be. It's easy to think that our choices ruin God's plan for us. Am I, am I alone there? Just let me, give me a, give me a nod or something. You've, you felt that? Okay. I'm just getting blank stares. And I'm like, maybe this, maybe everybody's better than me. I don't know. Um, yeah, but you guys do stupid, sinful things too. Like, I, I've been young before. Um, and it's easy to think, yeah, man, we had a good run, God, but now, now this is done. That thought means that we don't quite understand the God that we worship, the God who exists. Because God is in the business of doing good things even through our sin and our mistakes. Um, so we see God's character that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Um, but we also see that the real danger of idolatry, right? Um, God says, seek me first, right? Whatever you worship, you're going to become like them. If you worship dead idols, you're going to die, right? If you worship the living God, I bring you life and vitality. And the main problem that Israel had all throughout their, their existence is they would constantly put up, you know, altars to Baal, to, to the Asherah, and they would start acting like the culture around them, right? We talked about why they had to drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan back when we were dealing with the Joshua, that's the guy's name, um, 
because if you're in the world, you're going to start looking like the world. And they started loving and valuing the same thing. And I mean, <laughs> that's a danger for us, isn't it? Right? Like, I, I feel like I'm never the typical youth pastor who's like, oh, we're playing Wordle. Well, let's turn to the Wordle of God and we'll see the right answer is always five letters. J-E-S-U-S. -S, and, you know, doing the typical youth pastor stuff of like, the world is evil. Don't watch TV. Don't do Netflix. Burn all of your CDs. You don't even burn CDs anymore. Like, that's, that's back in my day. Like, get rid of your Amy Grant CDs. She's the devil. <laughs> no, she's not. Um, but we'll say it this way. Religious forsaking, right? Not loving God always leads to more problems, right? We think as long as we come to church, come to youth group on Sunday, read our Bibles, then the rest of the day doesn't really matter because we are starting our day focused on God. We're starting our week focused on God. And therefore, like, yeah, don't do the major things through the week, but becoming more and more like the world's not that big of a deal. But the problem is that religious things never stay religious, right? It's not the separate category of religious things, everything else. It all bleeds together. And all throughout the prophets, we see them saying, because you have worshipped false gods, you're doing things like, um, well, here we have immorality. You're personally sinful. Idolatry. You're worshiping false gods, like I said. And injustice, right? Your sin, the way that you treat others, are always related back to idolatry. Um, we'll get there when we do the prophets in a few weeks. Um, where... When things are just, you know, majorly wrong, not going right in your life, I think a valid question to ask is, am I doing something wrong in my worship? Am I worshiping, you know, my comfort and Netflix? Am I being too influenced by, what are you guys TikTokers? What do you do? TikTok and not, you know, scripture enough. Is my thinking off here? And that's leading to these problems in my life because idolatry leads to immorality and it leads to injustice. That's not the only thing that leads to injustice and immorality. Not every problem is linked back to your sin. Uh, we'll do Job next week and we'll see, you know, there's a whole book dedicated to saying that's not always the case. Um, but it's a question that we should definitely ask. And the third thing we see in the kings is that the kings set an expectation, a hope in God. Um, so all throughout, we see God's, his commitment to his covenant, right? So in 2 Kings, which is just this avalanche of evil, is what I call it. I stole that from Mark Dever. He says, you know, 2 Kings 8, The Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Hey, I made a promise to David, therefore I'm not going to wipe out this evil king. 2 Kings 13, 23. The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. 2 Kings 26. 
I will deliver you and the city out of the hands of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my king David's sake. So God is kind in acting for his own interests, right? Because he made a promise with Abraham, with David, with Isaac, with Jacob, God doesn't destroy them. We see his commitment to keeping his word. And in fact, um, I said First and Second Chronicles, they kind of rehash, every, like if you do a Bible reading in a year, anybody doing like a Bible reading in a year plan? No. All right. If you, if you read just straight through the Old Testament, you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and then you get to Chronicles and you're like, I feel like I've read all of this already. Like it's, it's repeating itself. And that's because it is, right? Um, but the point of Chronicles is to say, God has been faithful from creation until now. We can trust him going forward, right? Uh, First Chronicles, basically a second Samuel. Uh, you got about 10 chapters of genealogies. If you ever want to, if you ever want to be like, the Bible's irrelevant and boring, flip open the First Chronicles, the first 10 chapters. It's basically Adam all the way down to David, genealogies. Um, because God's been faithful from the beginning of the world. It's, it's a great message. It's just tedious to read. Second Chronicles is basically the king's. And, and it sets this, this pattern of God's faithful to provide leadership and kings and give his presence and his grace to his people. Um, and let me end with, go ahead and flip open to Second Chronicles 6.18. So if you're still in Second Kings, you got First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. So this is the retelling of Solomon building the temple, right? And first Samuel and se- yeah, first in first in second Samuel. I'm like, where am I? Second Samuel seven. David says, I'm gonna build a temple for you, God, and God says, No, you've you've killed too many people. There's too much blood on your hands to build my temple. But get everything ready and then your son can actually build it if he's a man of peace, um, which Solomon is. So he builds the temple, and then he dedicates it. They have kind of their you know, grand opening of the temple, and the glory of the Lord comes and fills it. And this is, this is Solomon's prayer. Um, and I just want us to see kind of this expectation that they have that God is going to be with his people in this place. He's going to forgive sins. Um, It's fairly long. Let me read it, starting in verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built? Yet you have regarded the prayer of your servant to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened day and night towards this house the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place 
and listen from heaven your dwelling, this, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So there's this expectation. When we pray towards God's presence in the temple, God's going to hear and forgive. 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindication to the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them again to the land you gave them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given your people as an inheritance. Um, the same thing with famine in verse 28 through 31. Um, look at verse 32. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes from the far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when the foreigner comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So there's this expectation of when your people repent and they pray towards you, forgive them. When justice needs to be done, rule over us, vindicate the righteous, judge the evil. Even a foreigner who's not your people, if he comes here and he prays, hear him, have mercy on him. So your name would go out and you would be known as the God who forgives and who, who, who gives and answers prayer. And that, that's what we have set up in the kings, and they ruin it. Sin and idolatry takes them downhill, but it sets up this pattern of, okay, we need somebody to lead us who will point us to God in righteousness, who will bring about forgiveness of sins and answers to prayer. We need a king better than the human kings that we've given, even, you know, David, the man after God's own heart, we have 20 chapters of his failures and his son's failures and his not doing anything about it. Um, we need a better king. And through the book of Kings and Chronicles, we have this pattern for the king of kings, Jesus Christ, to come, who even through the sin of his people and killing him brings about great blessing as the perfect ruler who brings us to God.